Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. episode of Garden DC, we're talking to Jan Kirsch, sculptor and landscape designer. She's lived on the eastern shore of Maryland for 35 years. And welcome to the podcast, Jan. Thanks, Kathy. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. And I've been a longtime admirer of your sculptures and your designs. So we want to dive into both those topics. Um, but first, uh, let me know what's going on in your world right now during COVID. Are you busier than ever? Are you looking for work? Uh, How is it going for you? I am um, thoroughly engaged. I, I actually haven't missed a, a beat. Um, you know, when COVID arrived in March, being deemed essential was um, a, a, a blessing. And I, I just haven't, I haven't looked back. I, I'm busy, 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 and really enjoying um, the collaboration with so many very interesting clients over here on the shore. That's great. I am hearing similar things from other designers that this is their busiest year almost ever. Um, no, I can't say that because I've been in business for a long, long time. But it is. Uh, yeah, no, the work is uh, phenomenal. I'm working with folks who are um, so enjoying their gardens. I mean, thoroughly enjoying being on the shore, and they're uh, they're just so much psychic pleasure from being out of doors. And um, and it's been yeah, it's been a terrific year. Absolutely. Good. And like many of us, you have multiple titles that you wear. Mm-hmm. Um, so like writer, speaker, and also landscape designer and sculptor. How do you divide your time between those two main titles, sculptor and landscape designer? It varies uh, and has varied over the years. I, um, I concentrate um, on the landscape design for obvious reasons in you know, spring, summer, and fall more than the sculpture. Um, I do try and get into the studio frequently in my busy landscape design season, but the winter does give me an opportunity to sculpt more. Um, If I am preparing for a show, and I've been lucky enough to do that a handful of times, um, especially a solo show, if I'm preparing for a solo show, I I don't think I sleep. I think I just (laughs) work all the time at both of them and just, you know, race back and forth. I have a studio and an office right at my house. So I, you know, I just like jump out of bed and hit the ground running um, and doing both basically when, when the time is necessary. It's great that you can work from home. And when you're preparing for a show, and I know that there's still been some happening during these COVID times, what goes into that? Do you create new works for every show or is it just a labeling type thing? It That's, varied also, though I, I would say during COVID, my most recent show was at the Zenith Gallery um, down in D.C. on Pennsylvania Avenue. And that show was um, work that was already in existence. Uh, when I did the show at, at the Maryland Hall for the Creative Arts in Annapolis a couple years ago, I I built loads of new work. I was like on fire because I had to fill and wanted to fill um, a big gallery space with maybe even like a little additional room that was an awesome space in a really cool facility. And I, you know, three-dimensional art takes up room, but you need lots of it. <laughs> and it was, that was, that was a big push, but fun and certainly worthwhile. And can you describe for our listeners um, your style of sculptors? Uh, hmm, my sculpture, it's been described as um, sensual 
whimsical. Um, I do fruit and vegetable sculpture. I, um, I try to find the essence of a uh, form and I, I use real fruits and vegetables as models uh, frequently. And, and then there's a point where the piece kind of takes on its own character. And I might, you know, like I remember one time going to the local uh, farmer's market and buying the most magnificent onion and I just, I raced home and started sculpting it. It was fabulous. But there was a point where I was far enough along on the piece that I took the onion in the kitchen and, you know, sautéed it. It was, you know, it sort of served its purpose to get me going. And then I jumped forward. And that's when the pieces really take on their, like, you know, kind of personality and, uh, and they're, you know, each each piece has plenty of that. And I think the most striking thing about your sculptures is their size and how they might be used in the landscape. So um, if listeners are picturing a peach that looks just like a peach, um, think of it more as like a peach on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. Um, the And I, I do love... Um, the big pieces. And that happens. Are you ready for the elevator pitch, Kathy? Totally. Okay. So this is um, my quick explanation is that I make my pieces in an oil-based clay and I sculpt them at a reasonable size. Um, so it's manageable and I can move them around. But once the piece is done, I have a mold made and I do a one-off casting of each piece in plaster. And then I worked the plaster piece just to death until it's like absolutely as perfect as I can get it. And I love the texture and the feel of it. And at that point, I have my work scanned and they make a 3D model. So I'm, you know, I'm sort of have one foot in the 16th century and then the other one is firmly planted in the 21st century, that technology helps me take that 3D model and I can enlarge a piece to virtually any size that I want. So it really opens, opens the door um, wide. I have, in fact, a, um, I have a 37-inch um, aubergine, uh, a big purple eggplant, that's sitting on Main Street in Ellicott City. And the model for that piece was only about 12 inches tall. So that's, you know, that's how it, that's how it happens. Mm -hmm. That's so fascinating. And I'm going to ask the hard question next, Jan, which is why fruits and vegetables? What drew you, <laughs> what drew you to that subject matter? Um, oh boy. Yeah. You're not the first. Uh, and uh, it's a, I guess it's because I love to cook, I love to eat, I like to grow vegetables. Um, I remember being a student 150 years ago in college and studying photography and asking my um, professor if it was okay if I, you know, did some program or, you know, class about, um, I was, I was, I think I was told to go off and do some still life work. And I, I just like found the produce aisle in the grocery store, totally inspiring and fabulous and went to the man who managed the produce department and asked if I could take pictures. And I think that's sort of what got me going. It's just, you know, it's just like a love of the, um, Oh, the essential shapes and forms of what nature produces um, always have found them fascinating. So, and, and then it just, it has just grown from there um, on and on. And I'm not, you know, I'm not like, I'm not ready to move on to the next theme yet. I still think there are, there are others. Um, there are others in my future that I haven't gotten to yet. Yeah. And I would think that, the colors are so vibrant in your work. Uh, who are your influences? 
Uh, well, the the fruit itself, I think. Um, but there, I just like pop artists. Uh, you know, back in the day when I was, I'm, I'm gonna like, I don't want to tell you how old I am, but the, you know, it's sort of like Andy Warhol-ish, and that, you know, there's an awful lot of work that was done back in the '60s and '70s that I think was influential. Um, and I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm like surrounded by nature. So it's not as much influenced by a particular artist as it is, um, being thrust into like the, you know, the center of crazy color all season long as I'm designing and enjoying gardens. Um, I just, you know, it's like, how could you not notice purple, red, orange, and yellow? <laughs> hard to miss yeah and just scrolling through instagram these days you can see everybody's peppers that you know they've discovered even if yes. you don't like to eat hot peppers they sure make a great photography subject yes oh absolutely and um and i have yeah if you look at my website where my sculpture portfolio lives um i i'm sort of top heavy on peppers <laughs> because they're they're fabulous um no question they're just you know uh really just the shapes and forms and colors are awesome and um i think uh weston's photographs of the green pepper uh that i think was influential in the early days um but the you know i can't i can't pin the color on any specific artist um, I think it's just because my eyes are open. Hmm. See, I was thinking you were going to say Magritte, who is one of my favorite artists yeah. <laughs> for the for the green apples. Okay. But, well, yeah. No. <laughs> I, there, well, you can pretend. <laughs> and I'm always open to suggestions. I'm very collaborative. Um, I, ju I just had a conversation with um, someone who saw my pineapple at a local show in um, Easton. And she was um, just in love with the pineapple. And we just, you know, we had a conversation about like, how big is it? And where will it fit? And is it going to sit on a base? And it was, um, yeah, no, it's like this. And, and you know, she's, she wasn't sure what she was going to do with the piece. She just knew that she loved it. And there is like, we just began today this collaborative process of, is it going to work for her? Where is it going to work? How is it going to be set? What size is the base? You know, it's like, yeah, it's really lovely give and take um, when a patron reaches out to me. That's interesting to hear about the client relationship in art, because you always think of the solitary artist creating things because that's within them. But the real world, real world practicality, obviously, is that you're working directly with people who will be incorporating your art into their household or landscapes. It, exactly. And I think, you know, I think that the, um, and, and you know this because you talk to garden designers all the time, the, um, the collaborative portion of building a garden for someone is, um, is just, in my, you know, humble opinion, a really important facet. Um, you, you know, you're not designing a garden, um, you know, for you. You're designing a garden for someone else. And that's why the conversation and the collaborative effort, you know, is just, like, wildly important. And I... I myself, I just, I love that part. I thrive on it. I, it's just, you know, picking someone's brain and finding out what makes them tick and, you know, why, you know, why does their heart sing at, you know, a particular color or type of plant or what's going to draw them out of their house into the garden. Um, and it might be a piece of my sculpture that does that, but it also might be, uh, you know, a particular tree in bloom or, you know, a, a sweep of some kind of flower or just, you know, it's like chatter and chatter and more chatter all about art and form and shape and color. It's, um, yeah, no, it's like what makes going to work a pleasure for me. And that obviously has a lot of crossover with your design work and working with clients there. 
And let's pivot to talk about your design side a little bit. So I would say um, maybe share a little bit about your style of garden design and your philosophy. <clears throat> That's a big open. Do you have like an extra hour and a half? Sure. <laughs> it's, um, it's like, oh boy, I've been a garden designer for, dare I say, 37 years. So it's, um, yeah, I've been at it for a long time. And I think the, uh, you know, there's not like one style, though I do hear from people in my community, you know, real estate agents, you know, and uh, house builders and architects, I mean, people who have the occasion to, you know, poke around in other people's gardens, that they can see or recognize some quality that's somewhat universal in my work. Um, and it, it's, I think it's a sense of um, a just like, paying attention to scale. Um, I think the other thing that I think about is um, how it feels to move through a garden. I'm really conscious of not like standing in one place and just having a view. It's more like movement and, you know, how are you going to walk from here to there to here to there? Um, that I think has, you know, that's like influenced my style. Um, I certainly have been influenced by the native landscape here on the eastern shore. So I think my gardens do, for the most part, have a certain um, feeling of belonging to the environment. And they, um, they, you know, the quality of the plants and the light affect my design. And I also am super conscious of the architecture. And I want uh, the garden to be uh, complementary to the house and, and not sort of overwhelm it and not compete. I, you know, I think architects kind of enjoy working, you know, collaboratively with me because I'm, you know, it's like, okay, you can go first. And, you know, I know that the house is really setting the tone and my job is to, you know, even, in, you know, improve the house. Um, by having a garden that complements it. Um, that I think that helps. And I'm, you know, I'm super lucky because I do design um, many, many, a good majority of my projects are riverfront, um, you know, waterfront, eastern shore properties. And um, so it's like, I've got great bones and it's, you know, if they're already pretty. I just make them better. Um, how's that? Perfect. Yeah, and you're so lucky to be in the area you are for those beautiful vistas that you can borrow. Absolutely, absolutely. And the gardens, Kathy, don't, um, I try really hard to, like, if someone has, you know, they're lucky enough to have a beautiful western sunset view or, the, you know, some of my clients have this, like, southern point, you know, like, poking out into a, one of our creeks or rivers, it's... Um, you know, there's just like so much natural drama already that sometimes the garden doesn't, you know, you don't want to um, compete. It's like, I, you know, who's going to fight with a sunset? I don't think so. So, you know, my gardens in that case may need to be kind of subtle and um, just sort of playing second fiddle, but we're, you know, we're supporting cast. Um, and that, you know, I, I definitely pay attention to that. Uh, as well. And I, I want my gardens to always um, kind of tell the story of which season we're in. Like if, if someone were dropped into one of my gardens from outer space and they're like in one of my clients' houses and they're looking out the window, I want them to know that we're in the height of summer or that we're in the dead of winter, or that, oh boy, here we go, we're in those very early days of spring, you should be able to look at the garden and pinpoint almost to the week where we are in the calendar. Hmm, I like that seasonality um, and sensibility that your your gardens are almost you know, echoing or playing second fiddle, as you say, to nature. 
For sure, for sure. And 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 you don't, I guess I, you know, I'm not criticizing, but there are so many gardens, it seems that they're like super heavy with evergreens. And, you know, there's a, you can look at the garden in February and then you look at the same garden in August, you look at the same garden in June and it's like, you can't tell <laughs> because there's just, you know, there's too much the same. Um, but I, yeah, no, mine have that, you know, you know that it's November when you're looking at, a, at a, one of the gardens I've designed, just because, you know, that's how a November garden looks. <laughs> it's sort of like borrowing from nature. You're absolutely right. I think you actually finally solved uh, a mystery for me, why I don't love formal boxwood gardens. <laughs> I think you actually finally explained to me why, because you can always look out on them, you know, every single day of the year it's the same garden yep yeah yeah no i think i mean boxwood are great i and i do use them i you know i love the fact that the deer don't eat them <laughs> that's you know that's a good thing and the eastern shore i mean we've got a lot of really beautiful historic homes and boy oh boy if you didn't use boxwood over here it's like you know it doesn't fit um but there are other things to be incorporate. Um, you know, the boxwood are just a player for me. They're not the big, you know, they're not the main menu that it's, you know, there's more to it. Do you have favorite plant families or maybe even specific plants? I'm thinking of specific grasses maybe that you like to use. Yeah. Um, I like muley grass a lot, the Muhlenbergia. Um, I used to use more of the miscanthus, but I've, you know, I, I still occasionally will use them, but not as many. Um, I'm because the panic and the switchgrass are so present here on the shore. Um, I think panicum may be a real favorite of mine. Um, I love spirobolus. Um, I use a ton of sedges. Um, I, oh my gosh, I love, there are a lot of grasses. I, ha you know, I have one project in particular. It's one of my clients who's a DC resident, in fact, who has a second house over here. And, um, when we started working together back in 2011, I think it was, um, and I, you know, it was like going through the interview process and just trying to, you know, figure out what makes him tick and what, you know, what's he, what's he looking for. Um, this was a, you know, I, he basically said, I am a fan of grasses and the more grasses you use, the better. And, um, and we have, and it's been awesome. It just, you know, and it looks, his garden really looks like it belongs on the Miles River. You know, it's just like, it makes sense. I have, you know, I have some exotics too, but there are a lot of native grasses and, um, some of them evergreen, some of them not. It's, um, yeah, no, I think in terms of plant families, um, I guess grasses are a real favorite, but I, boy, I have a really wide um, array of plants that I incorporate. And, um, you know, the fun for me is to take the knowledge I have about so many plants and hone my list you know, like really refine it so that there's a lot of um, like textural uh, play going on between the plants. I'm, I'm definitely a texture freak. I love color, but I, um, you know, the, the, the gardens look cool because there's so much textural difference and, um, and interest. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, no, I can't, I can't, I can't pin, it's sort of like who influenced my color? I don't think there's an answer. And do I, it's like asking someone with five kids, who's their favorite? <laughs> I, just, I don't have one, Kathy, sorry. <laughs> I, there, there's, uh, there, I just, that's, you know, the hardest part for me is maybe um, limiting the list. You know, I just, you know, I want to do a lot of repetition in the garden. So I just like, really work hard at making that um, plant list happen for a client's garden. You know, it's like all about form and shape and texture. And then I start plugging in the plants. It's not the other way around. I'm, I'm like painting a picture. And once I get the bones of the picture done, then I start looking seriously at like, okay, if I need somebody who's spiky or, 
you know, rounded or wispy or, you know, whatever the form is that I'm looking for. It's like, let me figure that out first. And then the plants, um, the specifics of the plants show up. Does that make sense? Does that makes sense to you? Yeah. And it, it is, uh, makes sense. And it's very interesting from a home gardener point of view where you're very plant centric and you're going to the garden center or a plant sale and you pick out a bunch of plants and then you go home and you say, where do these fit? Because you, <laughs> you bought them with no plan in mind, but you just fell in love with the plants. Yes. Oh yeah. No, I can't. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I can do the same thing. I mean, I, you know, my own garden is, is clearly a collector's garden, but I still, um, yeah, I'm still driven by like plant combinations and um, just, you know, there's, it's, I, you know, I, I do um, quite a few, what I call um, hedgerows or privacy borders. I mean, you know, you guys over there on the, on the Western side of the Bay have the same issues with folks who want to have a sense of enclosure. Um, so I'm called upon to build, you know, what I refer to as my hedgerows as a privacy border between two property owners. And um, those privacy borders or those hedgerows are like, they can be, you know, three, four, 500 feet in length. I mean, this is a, you know, is a good stretch. And um, I, I look at that as a challenging kind of painterly uh, garden solution. So it's a matter of looking at the space and solving problems, you know, and making it feel enclosed and private. But all the while, it's like you're painting with plants. Um, that's, yeah, it's like a different way of looking at it. And, um, but I totally understand and support your, um, you know, sort of plant addiction and habit, because I'm there too, I, I won't deny <laughs> that I also <laughs> see something and I go, oh, I just love this plant. I walk around my client's gardens and I, um, I sometimes covet things that I've done for them, but I, I can't like bring every single thing home that I've ever planted for everyone and put it in my garden. That would be silly. I would have no room <laughs> to walk. <laughs> I would be too jammed. I only have like <laughs> You know, I've like just under two acres, you know, and it's, you know, you, you got to have some breathing room in a garden too. That's also equally important, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I need to adopt some of these design sensibilities because, yeah, I don't have any breathing room uh, <laughs> on, my, yeah. on my little corner corner garden here. All right. Well, I'll, I'll come see you. I'll come see you <laughs> when, the, when the weather's right and um, yeah. and we're traveling again. And um, yes. Yes, I'll wave my arms around. I'll be happy to give you a consultation. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, that does bring up, and you had referred to the client you've been working for for years. What is your client uh, process? Do you meet with them first and then mutually decide to work together? Or how do you usually work it? Uh, well, it's, it, you know, someone calls me or they I've been recommended to them, you know, or they find me on the web or, you know, there's just there are all kinds of ways of, you know, the real estate agent that sold them the house might recommend me or the builder who's doing some renovations or the architect that's drawing for them and just any number of ways or maybe a neighbor. Um, word of mouth is pretty strong around here. I do a little bit of advertising, but um there's, yeah, there's a lot of chatter in our community, I think. That's how um, I've, I think many of my clients have found me. Um, though I must say that the internet is also like a great source of, um, you know, client, um, just, you know, new people finding my work. Um, so, but once, you know, once there is that initial um, phone call and the project sounds interesting and we, you know, we just like, dance around each other and talk and make sure it feels comfortable, then I will make a site visit. Um, it's not really important for them to come to my office. It's way more important for me to go and visit them in their home. You know, this is when COVID's done, I'll be happy again when I can run in and out of people's houses at whim and just look out their windows and make sure I catch their views. Um, but we, you know, we do have a good, um, you know, hour plus, you know, it seems to run into hour and a half, two hours that first visit when 
we walk the site and I take volumes of notes and we're, we're just sort of scoping out um, what the wish list is all about and what the um, practical needs are and, you know, do they want a swimming pool and do, you know, do they want a fire pit and, you know, do we need a shade structure? They're just, you know, any number of um, drivers. And um, very often a client will ask me for a master plan or like a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. It depends on the size of the property and, you know, how eager they are to get going. Um, so it's, you know, there's lots and lots of conversation. Um, then the other thing that I have found useful over the years is to send um, my prospective clients off on a garden tour. Um, and they have a chance to go to two or three or four or six um, of my finished gardens of varying ages and sizes. Um, and properties that kind of relate to what they may have and it gives them a chance to see some finished work um, to just you know kind of spark their interest and then we have more conversation and i get feedback uh, they often take pictures and they share places like you know that that really work for them or not so it's um yeah no it's the design process doesn't really get going immediately there's a lot of um conversation and really like feeling out the needs first am i answering your question yeah and it sounds like it's definitely a collaboration and um garden design or landscape design is not for those who aren't um let's just say they're not people persons <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's definitely yeah. about the relationship yeah, I, I, yeah, and the, it seems to me the folks who choose to work with me, um, they really care about their gardens, and uh, they may or may not work in them themselves. They may very well have a landscape crew, or they might have a caretaker um, that takes, you know, they actual does the actual work for them, um, but the folks that are attracted to my work. Um, seem to really have an affinity and a, um, a desire to really make their home more special and um, just a reflection of, you know, themselves and their personalities and how they want to entertain. And even if they're not like, you know, real super social types, um, it's just a matter of like making their own little cave feel perfect um, in their own way. You know, it's like we we talk about taking a glass of wine or a cup of coffee and heading out the door um, into the garden. And I, you know, a lot of my folks, um, that's, you know, they're here maybe just for the weekend or maybe they're, you know, part timers and it's like four or five days on the shore and the rest of the time it's, you know, back on the city side, on your side or vice versa. But when they're here, the out of doors is really calling their name and they, you know, they're like fully participating in their outdoor environment. And um, they, yeah, my clients have something to say. Um, that's why, you know, I, I talk a lot, but I really do listen a lot, too. That is such an important skill to have. And I wanted to roll it back a little bit and ask about how you originally got into gardening and growing and garden design and art. Mm. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about your childhood and how you came to become a landscape designer. Oh, boy. Um uh, well, I, I do, when people ask me a question similar to that, that's, it's a, that's a lot, <laughs> you know, um, but I have, I, people have asked me similar questions and, um, I'll try to remember to answer everything. The, I made my first pot out of clay when I was five. Um, and I, I absolutely remember, you know, doing it and being in a little art class in the summer, um, of my fifth year. And that, you know, kind of started me off with art, thinking that it was 
I wasn't thinking down the road that it was going to be, you know, my future work. I mean, who the heck knew at five? Um, but I, I do remember really enjoying making a three-dimensional object. There's no question that was really fun. And then I just kept my hand in clay and in art of all sorts all the way through elementary school. I went to a friend's school in uh, South Jersey where I lived and had a great art program and wonderful art teacher and just, yeah, it was like that was one of my happiest um, classes as I was growing up. And um, I think um, the horticulture, I guess the horticulture happened naturally. I had a grandmother who was a great gardener, though I I think she was like over it or didn't, you know, she was getting older by the time I realized that I liked horticulture. So we didn't overlap, but I think I probably inherited her genes. So the growing part came along later um, when I lived in Florida. Um, I recognized that there was something really cool about tropical plants growing in a garden. <laughs> so that got me going on that score. Um, and the art, you know, it's like the art and horticulture have been uh, both present for a, a long, yeah, a, like forever, like my my entire life. I think I've always done some of both. Um, the art was the major player in the beginning, though, you know, Kathy, I hadn't thought about this in years, years and years and years. But when I was a little kid, um, I used to have a boyfriend, I mean, not like a boyfriend, I was too little, but a friend who happened to be a boy who lived next door. And I, I think I was only in about kindergarten. And I remember building a set of um, steps in the side of a ravine with this young guy um, and thinking that that was like the coolest thing to do. We were you know, using shovels and digging and making steps. And then I do remember when I was a little bit older, probably in, I don't know, fourth, fifth grade, um, building tree forts, again, with a, a male friend. Um, I, I was friends with a lot of little boys. I was a bit of a tomboy. So it's like those early experiences um, put me outside and I guess I like the sense of accomplishment, like the feeling that I was actually making something. Does that wow. answer? Does that answer? I mean, I hadn't thought about this in years. <laughs> good question. You got me thinking. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that brought back some good memories. That sounds like a wonderful childhood, too. Yeah. No, I was pretty lucky. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, my parents had a place that had about, um, I think it was like 12 acres of woods. And um, I, yeah, I spent a lot of time with poison ivy, unfortunately, but I also, you know, I remember being in the woods and, you know, taking walks with my dad and seeing skunk cabbage and thinking it was like super cool. And my mom grew uh, lily of the valley up and down these stone steps that we had. And so, yeah, I wasn't like a super young horticulturalist by any means. It didn't happen until I was probably in my late teens or early 20s. But I think that there were there's certain memories that got me going um, as a kid. And I think just the pleasure of being out of doors. That's, you know, that's one of the joys of being a garden designer um, that, you know, you can be outside a lot of the time. You don't have to be inside working at your desk. Um, I do a lot of my drawings on site. Um, I'm, it's very common for my clients to see me literally just plunk down sitting in the middle of their driveway <laughs> with my mobile drawing board and sketching away. I'm, you know, I think the little tomboy didn't really go away, even though I'm like not that young anymore. <laughs> it does sound like uh, you've kept a lot of that inside you. And um, when you're working and designing in the garden, do you ever work with clients who ask you, they might have an art piece or a sculpture on hand that they want to work into the landscape? And if they do, how do you work with that and orient it? Uh, yes, the answer is yes. 
um, it doesn't happen real frequently, but it does happen occasionally. And, um, and it's, you know, it's just a matter of, I, I guess it's like focusing on where, like where and how do they want to see the piece? Um, I'm, I'm really big on like seeing a piece of sculpture from the, you know, the main room of the house or from your kitchen table, you know, what, what like, where do you spend most of your time? There's kind of, that is a driver. Um, sometimes it's really fun to see a piece of art if you have a long driveway and you're headed home and we can use light in the garden particularly, it's really fun to have a piece of art that you see coming and going. There's, you know, that's really fun. I have a, um, at my own personal house, I have a red, uh, bright red 36 inch long chili pepper at the end of my driveway. Um, and it is lighted and coming home at night in the wintertime, it's kind of fun to turn the corner into my driveway and see my chili pepper. So it's, you know, it depends on where you want, you know, how you want to view it. Um, if you're sitting down at your patio at the pool or if you're on your terrace and you have this like long view into the lawn or even a short view, if it's a teeny garden, um, you know, it's like, do you want to put the piece at um, sitting height to be viewed best from the table? Or is it a piece that you're going to be walking by as you're, you know, headed from one garden room to the next? Um, there, yeah, there are a lot of reasons. Um, one of the coolest pieces, I don't remember, I don't even remember where it was, but I was on a garden tour um, with either the garden writers um, now called Garden Com, or I was with um, a group from uh, APLD. I can't remember, but we visited a home where there was a big dark um, swimming pool, and there was this fabulous um, figurative piece of a kind of a chunky, overweight woman sitting right at the edge of the pool. And I thought that the juxtaposition to the water was just fabulous. So it's, you know, it's like whatever makes you tick. Um, I have a, um, I have three habanero chili peppers that are sitting um, in a garden at one of my uh, actually landscape client and art patron's house. It's like a joy for me when both, <laughs> you know, both of my worlds align. Um, these folks um, purchased three habanero peppers um, they're three different colors, and they're set on their concrete bases at three different heights, um, oriented differently, but they see them when they're at their pool, they see them from the deck, and they're viewed from inside, from the kitchen, um, if you're at the workstation, you know, at the island, or if you're at the, uh, the dining table where they, you know, it's like, where do you spend that much time that, you know, and we, we arrange to have these three habanero peppers, like, you know, fill the need in a lot of different ways. It was, um, that was a super challenge and fun. Yeah, those sound like really cool focal points for the garden as well. Yeah, I think, you know, you asked me before about color. I think part of the driver for me to make my work, like, super colorful is because winter can be so quiet in the garden. Um, you know, we're, we're just like losing our beautiful fall leaves and we're left with evergreens. But we, we you know, I kind of miss all those like hot colors that I use um, in perennials and, shrub, you know, flowering shrubs. And, you know, it's like all those plants go to sleep. And we have a fairly, you know, gray, brown, green um, color scheme in the wintertime. So if my clients, like, love color, adding something like the habanero peppers or, you know, a big purple eggplant, I mean, they're, you know, it's like you still have color. And it gives the garden a um, just like another winter facet. It's, you know, it's sort of like that's when the sculpture really um, shines because the plantings, 
are uh, they become secondary, and the, and then it gives a chance for the sculpture to like step up to the plate and be the you know the lead character, and then maybe the sculpture takes a little bit of a you know a, a step back in the spring and summer when all the bulbs start blooming and all the flowers start coming out and all the flowering shrubs are doing their thing. So it's, um, yeah, it's like this symbiotic relationship. It's, um, it, and it works, it, it works. That's, but those, those bright colors, I love seeing my, you know, I have a red chili pepper and I have a, a purple artichoke um, and I have five asparagus of three different shades in my own personal garden. So as I'm coming down my driveway, it's, it's like they're welcoming me all winter long. I just, you know, it's like there's still color in my garden, even if it's the dreariest February day. And, um, and that's why, because I've got, you know, I have like uh, lime green, lavender, and um, trying to remember the other color asparagus that I have out there, but they're just, you know, they're like, beacons they're you know they're really cool that sounds like a wonderful view and it kind of reminds me of those corton steel uh cotswold sheep that are at the morris arboretum as you interrupt that hillside are you familiar with that no i'm not tell me about them so when you come to the morris arboretum um outside of philadelphia mm -hmm. um you kind of you're kind of circling up a hillside a very steep hillside but you're going up it diagonally and in the distance there's these court and steel cutouts of sheep and they're a, oh, a little yes. bit bigger than life size yeah that they're like awesome yeah yeah in the in the big meadow and you know depending on how the sunlight is coming at certain times of day it can look like there's real sheep <laughs> until you get, <laughs> until you drive by a little closer, and you're like, no, that's a flat sheep. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds really cool. They, I saw that same effect. I wonder if it was the same artist that was. It was out in uh, Napa, California, I think, at an art center there that they have, um, and you know, like sort of an artful sheep. And I can't remember if it was Corton or not, mm -hmm. um, but that's it's a wonderful and whimsical. Um, look, I agree with you. It's, you know, dotting the hillside, especially. We don't have too many hillsides over here on the shore. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I, I, I love the imagery. I love that imagery. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty cool. Yep. I'm looking it up. The artist is Charles Leyland, uh, an American artist, and he is modern. So, yeah, oh, it could, cool. could be the same one yeah. that you saw in California. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, no, I... Um, yeah, looking at sculpture in public places is, um, I, it's always inspirational. I, I, you know, I just like, I, I, I still remember the feeling of being in Chicago and looking at that, what they call the bean, um, you know, that giant reflective sculpture. Yeah. I just, you know, it's fabulous. And I remember seeing um, Henry Moore had an exhibit Oh, a number, a number of years ago now at the um, uh, New York Botanical Garden. And I, that was, I, I just, you know, it's like there are, there are works that I may forget specifically which work was where, but the, um, it's just the feeling of walking through space and discovering a piece of art. There's just, you know, something really delightful about it. And it's just, there's that um, relationship between the plantings and a piece of sculpture that, you, you know, it's like you can't find that um, in the museum. It's, it's different when you're out in the environment. Um, it, yeah, no. Have you been to the Nasher? Is that um, out in, in Dallas? Is that a, a sculpture garden that you have visited? No, I haven't been to that one. Tell me about that. Yeah, I can't, I don't. I mean, Dallas is Dallas, but um, the Nasher is. Um, it's you know, there's an, a modern art museum, and it's not a. a it's not a, a huge sculpture garden behind the museum, but I just remember feeling um, that it was so well done. I can't tell you who designed it, but the, but the way you um, move through the space. And they, you just sort of have this natural progression um, through this landscaped area, 
some of it's very um, geometric and other areas are softer corners. Um, I remember there's a um, there's a Henry Moore reclining nude right next to a um, like a rectangular shaped uh, body of water and and I if I remember correctly there was a weeping willow not that far off and the juxtaposition of the water and the sparkle and the willow leaves and you know and then this more sculpture it was you know, it's like I've got this little picture in my brain that I, you know, I saw this years ago, but it's still there. It's, um, yeah, I think it's it's all those elements, Kathy, uh, that we get to use as garden designers um, that are, uh, that's what brings the garden alive, you know, and then sculpture is just one part of it. That's why it's so, I mean, for me, it's like when someone says, will you please you know, sell me a piece of sculpture, and then I want you to cite it in my garden, that's about as good a request as I get, because <laughs> you know, I get to wear both hats. Um, it's, yeah, it's super fun. Yeah, I just looked up the Nasher, so it's N-A-S-H-E-R for, yeah. for those listeners, and it's in downtown Dallas. Next time I go to Dallas, I'll definitely have to visit there. It looks beautiful, and I would say my favorite sculpture garden outside of the greater DC area um, is the Walker in Minneapolis. Have you been to that one? No, I've never been to Minneapolis. I'll put that on the list. Oh, definitely go. If you go, it sits on the river and it's part of the Walker uh, Modern Art Museum and the outdoor sculpture garden is immense. And you've probably seen the giant cherry on a spoon in a postcard. That's part, that's part of their garden. And, you know, you see that picture, iconic picture all the time, but when you see it in person, it's huge. (laughs) It's like uh, laying down is probably like a six story building. And what I didn't realize is, the cherry, the shiny cherry, actually has water flowing over it. Oh, very cool. So I was like, oh, that is not shown in the photos. You don't even think about that part oh, of it. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'll, I, Minneapolis is on my list. I will definitely get there. Thank you for the little boost. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful yeah. city and a beautiful sculpture garden. Oh, Do you have any local um, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, or Pennsylvania, or Delaware sculpture gardens that you like to visit? I, oh, I'm, uh, I think, you know, the PepsiCo isn't, uh, that one's more, that's New York, that's purchased mm-hmm. New York. I think that was uh, one that I, I loved and remember visiting. Um, I used, you know, I, it sounds sort of old fashioned, but I, I used to spend a lot of time as a high school kid um, over at the Rodin Museum in Philadelphia. Um, and I'm, you know, it's not like my work is his or his, you know, I don't know that we can talk about my work in the same sentence, but I I just remember being in that museum um, a lot. And it just, I guess, by osmosis, it just sort of like filtered into my brain. Um, and that, so, yeah, that that's like an old timey favorite. Um I, in Washington, I, you know, it's, I don't, um, God, Washington is a city with tons of sculpture around. Um, I, I love Chanticleer, even though it's not a sculpture garden. Um, I think of the gardens that are up near, you know, Longwoods and Winneter and that neck of the woods. Um, I think Chanticleer is a favorite because they, uh, they use gardens and plants in a whimsical way. Um, and the, the structure is kind of interesting there. Um, there's also a garden. Um, I can't, it's not anywhere close. It was, um, oh, it's the one that was near, um, I've been to Copenhagen. And there was a sculpture garden called, I think it's Louisiana. You can check me out on that one too. Um, I visited many years ago, and I think, you know, as I think back at the places I've been and gardens that I've seen, that's one that strikes me as rather influential. Um, I think that one um, also is like if you get across the pond again, that would be a really good one to go see. Um, It was a beautiful, just like a walking 
outdoor beautiful space uh, with tons of art. Um, that was uh, that's a good one. Um, you know, the other <laughs> the other thing when I think about art and travel is um, I remember being in I've been to Florence I think twice and um, just like being in Florence, you don't even have to go to a museum. <laughs> no, it's just like the whole city um, feels like an art museum to me. Um, yeah, no, and then I'm sure, I, you know, the other, our, one of the newest museums um, in the D.C. area is, um, what is it, Gl uh, Gl Glens? Is it Glenstone? Glenstone? Yeah, yeah, Glenstone. Yeah, Glenstone is, um, I, I've been there twice so far and um, just really enjoyed the, um, the sculpture was like awesome, but the, you know, the art is fabulous and the way the um, architecture and the landscape and the art are all so integrated, you know, it's like you don't know where one starts and the other one's stops it's I, that was it's it's really beautifully done i think everyone in the washington area should go there one at a time you know carefully <laughs> yes yeah glenstone is definitely one of those immersive experiences absolutely where you're going to spend the better part of a day it's not you're not going to run yep. through it in a half hour no no nor do you want to yeah no, no it's that's that, yeah that's a real gift to the washington area there's no question um yeah no i thought that was like super special and I you know I've been like I say I've been twice and I you know when we start traveling again and doing things we will do that um you know once once we move on to the the next phase of our lives um we're we're I think yeah things are getting better maybe sooner later <laughs> who knows <laughs> hopefully yeah. yeah and by next summer hopefully you can uh get out back to Glenstone yeah. and for listeners I was going to recommend of course on the National Mall there's both the Hirshhorn Sculpture Garden and the National Gallery of Art Sculpture Garden which have some amazing pieces um, and then there's a little known sculpture garden that you can only visit I guess they have their open house about once a year and, and maybe you've been there too Jan which is the Ford Hook Farm the headquarters of Burpee in Doylestown, PA. Have you been to that one? No, I certainly have been to the sculpture garden at the Hirshhorn about a hundred times. <laughs> so yeah. I agree. No, I agree with you um, on our local sculpture gardens. They're fabulous, but no, I haven't been to the burpee one. Um, sounds pretty cool. Yeah. They open up once a, or, or twice a year for a weekend to, to come and look at their trial plants. Uh -huh. um, usually it's toward the end of July, early August. Yep. And then you're encouraged to go and look at the trial gardens. And then you're like, wait a minute, over here is an incredible sculpture collection wow. <laughs> and beautiful landscape of just like rolling meadows and different mm -hmm. annual flower combinations. And that was a joy to find so oh, look good. up Ford Hook Farm and get on Burpee's mail list because they send that postcard or email with that invitation about once a year and hopefully of course post-COVID yeah. uh, they'll open it back up again for yeah. that yeah you know I, I did know of that because you're I think I'm, it may have been it might have been this either last summer or this summer that I had conversation with someone at Burpee and I thought about going because I, I now that you describe it I know what you're talking about but I I was going to go more as a landscape person not so much a, um, a sculptor I didn't even realize I was going to go look at the trial gardens oh that's so wonderful what a little um, secret that you've just shared with the world <laughs> yeah. yeah it's definitely something to stumble across and be like okay now this is a nice bonus and I could totally see one of your sculptures in that landscape as well, Jan. Oh, good. Thank you. Well, put in a good word for me. Oh, you know, the, <laughs> other, the other garden that we haven't, um, I don't know what you think of it, um, Grounds for Sculpture up in, um, up near Trenton, New Jersey. Do you know that place? I do, but it's been so long since I've been there. Yeah, that's, it's kind of, um, it's, I, well, most unusual. And I, I guess the sense is sometimes I feel like um, it's like, so much work um, and so many diverse pieces, and it's it's like um, sensory overload. <laughs> but it is a this you know if you're if you're like on your way to New York or on your way home from New York and you want a little side trip, that's 
that can be a fun one too. That's, um, you know, if you're looking, if you're really into sculpture, that's a fun one. And they, they have some really cool exhibits. Yeah. No, we could just spend our lives like bouncing around from sculpture garden to sculpture garden. <laughs> and that, that wouldn't be a bad thing. <laughs> no, no. I'm thinking, okay, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I think you and I need to plan a road trip. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> we'll just make a compass point to compass point. You got um, it. Sounds like that. So for our listeners, how can they uh, view your online portfolio of both your sculptures and landscape work? Uh, easiest way is to just go to jankirschstudio.com. And that's um, K-I-R-S-H.com, jankirschstudio.com. And um, I, I have a little store online now as well. So yeah, we're we're easily found. If you just Google my name, uh, something's bound to pop up. And I'll definitely put a link to that um, in the show notes. And I always want to spell your name with a, a C in it, like the German word for cherry. Yes. But <laughs> don't, that's, yeah, don't go there. Don't go there. <laughs> I'm sure that happens a lot. But it's yeah. so for listeners, it's Jan, just like it sounds, and then K I R S H. Thanks, Kath. Well, thank you so much for talking about your art your design and your life with us today it was um actually this was like a really fun and um totally unexpected pleasure i <laughs> i didn't know that i had that much to say but i guess i do thank you for <laughs> and then kathy your questions were really first class um got me thinking so um good work on your part my dear that was excellent really had some fun well, thank you, Jan, and welcome to the podcast world. Thank you. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Plant profile, rosemary. Rosemary is a woody perennial or subshrub. Rosemary's Latin name has been recently changed to reflect the fact that it is actually part of the sage or salvia family. It comes in many forms from prostrate to vertical and in foliage shades that range from blue-green to golden-yellow. Rosemary Arp is a reliably hardy variety for the Mid-Atlantic region. It can withstand our freeze-thaw-freeze winter cycles, which can often be the demise of other rosemary varieties. The key is good drainage and full sun. Don't overwater it, as it is susceptible to root rot. An ideal situation is to plant it overhanging a rock wall, be sure to give it room as it can spread to four feet wide and high. Rosemary is drought tolerant and deer proof. Pollinators love it. Honeybees are especially attracted to the tiny blue or white flowers. There is usually no need to fertilize it, though a little fish fertilizer occasionally will not hurt. To start new plants, it is best to take cuttings as it is difficult to grow rosemary from seed. When using it in cooking, Snip off young stems and leaves for the freshest taste. You can take up to a third of the plant at any one time, then let it recover before harvesting from it again. At holiday time, you will see potted up rosemary plants sold in grocery stores. These are often quite root bound and will not live long in indoor conditions. Take cuttings liberally and use them for cooking and decoration, then discard the plant when it starts to decline. Try growing rosemary in your garden today you can grow that. For this week's What's Blooming in the Garden segment, I wanted to focus on indoor blooms. Now is the time of year that days are getting short and we're turning to some 
bright colors for our holiday plants. And I have an upcoming webinar on that very topic and also indoor bulb forcing. If you're interested in that, go to our website, washingtongardener.com or washingtongardener.blogspot.com. And in the keyword search, enter webinar or webinars, and you should see the last couple webinars that we're offering this year. And the one on holiday plants and indoor bulb forcing demonstration is taking place December 6th at 2 p.m. That's a Sunday. And if you can't make it live to listen to the session, you can still register for it and then be sent the recording afterwards. So... In my indoor plant world, I have a bunch of violets, a a little violet collection on my bedroom windowsill, which is thankfully a very deep windowsill. I'm very thankful in this old house that I have um, windows that are about 18 inches or more um, wide. Uh, So it gives me plenty of plant demonstration and homes for them, of course, and also the cats napping spots. And uh, nearby that I have um, some purple foliage plants and also my Thanksgiving cactus. And yes, that is Thanksgiving cactus, not Christmas cactus. Um, That's being sold in most stores these days. And if you see it in bloom now, it is that Thanksgiving cactus. And in that talk that I have coming up that webinar, I'll talk about some more of the differences between the different kinds of Thanksgiving, Christmas, and even Easter cactus. Uh, But mine is blooming up its storm. It's kind of a fuchsia lipstick pink. Um, It should go on for a few more weeks, and then it usually drops its blooms, and then it has a little bit of a sporadic rebloom next spring, summer. Uh, The other thing I'm looking forward to is the box full of amaryllis that I have put into dormancy um, in my attic. I've cut back the foliage, I've stopped watering them, and I'll pull them out in about a month or so to get them started on their new process. And then the last thing I'm enjoying indoors are a couple of orchids I've gifted to myself um, to get me through this winter blah short day period. And I recommend you do the same. It doesn't have to be orchids, could be anything indoor blooming, uh, maybe just a fresh bouquet of flowers, maybe some cuttings from your own garden, maybe um, some paper whites you force into bloom. You know, treat yourself um, in these gray, brown, early winter, late fall days and have a wonderful holiday season. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener Magazine. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.